And I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off or from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house of wooded height. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall come forth, go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his own vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the people walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sieges laid upon us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you... O Bethlehem, Rapha, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you shall come for, forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of Ben, they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads our border. 
the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. Father in heaven, uh, as we come to consider your word, um, we're going to speak of, of big things. <laughs> and we're going to speak of evil that goes deeper than we can often perceive and is resident within our own hearts. And your rescue that rich reaches beyond our capacity to imagine it in its magnitude and kindness and love and glory. And we're going to speak of our need for Jesus the King. And that need that we have for Jesus the King is more urgent and is more desperate than we can ever imagine. Even those of us who immediately say, yes, we need Jesus, yet nevertheless, that need is deeper than we can even realize. And so we need your Holy Spirit. We need your Holy Spirit. We, we ask that you will make us think clearly and only believe things that are true and grant me only to say things that are true. And will you grant us not only to know cognitively, but to know you relationally, to be able to taste and see that you are good. Will you give us the grace to respond to your good news? That we might be a people transformed, that we might be a people who are useful in this world for your glory, and that we might be inheritors of the kingdom of the age to come. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Hi, everybody. Um, will you please turn back to, we're going to look at both of those readings. We're continuing in the book of Micah. Those are big readings. There's a lot to cover, and we're not going to be able to get to it all. Um, but as a kind of way into Micah, I want to begin with a story. Um, it's a true story. And I want you to imagine uh, a Ugandan man uh, sitting in a church in London on Good Friday in 1977. Um, just a month before this, he and his wife had narrowly escaped Uganda. Uganda at the time was being ruled by a terrible dictator called Idi Amin. And this man sitting in a church in London, his name was Bishop Festo Kivengera. And he had witnessed terrible, terrible things. He had witnessed executions. Uh, his daughter had been wrongfully arrested and had been beaten by the police in Uganda. Uh, he had seen innocent people dragged from their homes and they were never seen again. And just a month before this moment, his good friend, Janani Luwum, who was Archbishop of Uganda, had been murdered by Idi Amin's agents. And Bishop Festo and his wife had escaped literally by climbing over mountains in the middle of the night to get out of Uganda. And now a month later, he's in London and he's safe. And he's sitting in church on Good Friday. And he's battling anger, bitterness towards Idi Amin. And of course he is, right? I mean, you would, I would, we all would. But here's my question. What difference does Jesus make for a man like that? Bishop Festo has been traumatized by violence and by injustice. What does Jesus have to say to a man in that kind of extreme situation? 
Because if Jesus has nothing to say, then, you know, we're just playing games. But on the other hand, if Jesus can give peace and justice that satisfies somebody who's experienced what Bishop Festo has experienced, then, then he can do that for any of us. And so what I want to show you today is this. I want to show you that Jesus gives a peace and a justice that this world can never give. And I want to show you that from the book of Micah. I want to show you that it's true for someone like Bishop Festo. We're going to quote him a lot today. And I want to show you that it must become our deepest conviction. Jesus gives us a peace and a justice that this world can never give. Come with me to Micah and I'll show you what I mean. Now, Micah, you'll remember from last week, is a prophet in ancient Israel, and he's writing about 700 years before Jesus Christ. He's addressing ancient Israel. And in this reading, he sort of contrasts two kingdoms. Uh, I'm going to call one kingdom the kingdom of this world. That's my name for it. It's not Micah's name. The other kingdom I'm going to call the kingdom of God. And Micah is protesting the kingdom of this world. And Mike is telling us that what we really need is the kingdom of God. Now, first, I want you to watch how Micah protests the kingdom of this world. So take a look at the first reading at the very beginning. This is Micah chapter three, beginning at verse one. Micah says this, and I said, hear you heads of Jacob and you rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? Now pause there. Do you see the words that he uses? He talks about the heads of Jacob or Israel, and he talks about the rulers of Israel. Now, these are two words that are synonymous, and they're two words that describe like clan leaders or chiefs of, of uh, little subgroups in Israel. And at this time, they functioned as part of Israel's law enforcement. So they weren't police, they were a little bit more like uh, local judges. And their job was very, very important. Uh, the job of these uh, rulers or these heads, or I'll call them judges, they're a little bit like chiefs, they're uh, the clan leaders. Their job was to, on the one hand, know the law of Israel, which is the law of the Lord that had come through Moses hundreds of years before this. They were to know the law of Israel, the law of the Lord, and then they were supposed to uh, hear disputes between people in Israel and then settle them, decide them in a way that uh, promoted justice and flourishing. And it's important that we see right out of the gate that this group of this function was part of God's plan from Israel from the very beginning. Uh, you can go back to Exodus. We talked about this about a year ago. Uh, Moses started this pro process way back at the Exodus. And he had commissioned other leaders in Israel to function in this same way. These judges were part of God's plan so that Israel could flourish in this life through maintaining a society that promoted justice. Justice as defined by the Lord. So Micah's going to take aim at these judges. But on the other hand, Micah is also taking aim at another institution. Look at verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5. Micah's talking to his own colleagues who were the prophets. The prophets also were part of God's plan. Um, they had a lot of different jobs to do, but very importantly, the prophets of Israel were supposed to teach people peace. Now, peace 
in our minds often means just the absence of conflict, perhaps, uh, perhaps no war, something like that. Um, but it means something much deeper and richer in the Bible. Um, peace means relational peace with God, first and foremost. And then because we've got relational peace with God, it promotes relational peace with others. And it's very closely connected with justice in the Bible. It includes no war, but it's much bigger than no war. Now, what I want you to see right now is that both of these institutions, the judges and the prophets, they're both uh, gifts of God. Um, and both the judges and the prophets, even in Micah's day, were still invoking the Lord who had liberated them from Egypt. You can see that in chapter three, verse 11, they're leaning upon the Lord and they're invoking the Lord's authority. But nevertheless, Micah looks at them and calls them phonies. They are not representatives of the kingdom of God. They are representatives of the kingdom of this world. Micah says these judges and these prophets are hopelessly corrupted by sin and selfishness, by injustice and by evil. So the prophets, first of all, verse five, the prophets are clearly just prophets for hire. Um, they'll say, according to Micah, whatever their constituents want them to say, if they'll get paid. But Micah's focus is a little bit more on these corrupt judges, these clan leaders. Look at the end of verse one. And I want you to watch how the kingdom of this world works. Micah's speaking to the judges, and he says this, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil. Pause there. This is devastating. Because I want you to see how Micah targets and begins with the heart and the preferences of these judges of Israel. This is where the kingdom of this world begins. It's where sin begins in the heart. And it works a little bit like this. Um, God gives us really good gifts. In this case, um, law enforcement and judges and prophets and preachers. God gives us really, really good gifts. But then what happens is that sin uh, twists the human heart so that we end up rejecting God and his authority and we promote and prefer ourselves. And very often when we do that without ever realizing it, we start preferring evil and calling it good. And we start rejecting good and calling it evil. And because we're thinking, literally thinking that evil is good and good is evil, we think that we are um, doing all that we're doing in good faith. We think we're doing right. The kingdom of this world begins with a heart that's twisted. But then comes the next step, because what happens is in the kingdom of this world, sin leverages whatever authority we might have originally from God, and we begin to leverage it in order to serve ourselves and consume other people. Look at verse 2, and you, I hope you can feel the weight of this. Micah says, you who hate the good and love the evil, there's the heart, and now watch how they consume who tear the skin off my people and their flesh from off their bones. Now you've got to see how shocking this is because what Mike is saying is this. He's saying, Mike, he's saying judges, God gave you 
authority. And God gave you authority so that Israel could flourish. But nevertheless, you are now using that very God-given authority in order to mutilate God's people. But Micah's not done yet. Look at verse 3 and watch how it intensifies. It says this, Who eat the flesh off my people. Can you hear the cannibalism there? Who flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Mike is trying to shock us. And there's a very good reason why that imagery is meant to shock us. Here's why. When we're in the midst of the kingdom of this world, we almost always become desensitized to the horror of evil and sin and injustice. And the reason is that it just becomes part of our landscape. It becomes part of the air that we breathe and the water that we swim in. And we very easily, because we're so used to it, we end up justifying it and we end up perpetuating it. And therefore, Micah has to come against us and the leaders of his day with very strong language. And he says, no, it's not normal, it's cannibalism. And that's how the kingdom of this world works. What happens is the kingdom of this world takes originally God-given authority and gifts, twists them to serve our self-interests, and that ends up leading us to consume other people, very often thinking that we're doing the right thing, and it ends up we pervert both justice and peace. And a prophet like Micah is very good at recognizing it. Uh, Bishop Festo Kivengera was also very good at recognizing it. And listen to what he says, what Bishop Festo says when he's analyzing the reign of Idi Amin. He says this, let me quote, uppermost in our minds, writes Festo, that year was the difference between the creative power of God and the violent force of those in authority, which was unable to heal the ills of the country. When a man uses force, he confesses that he cannot change the situation which threatens him. And so being weak and insecure, the kingdom of this world is always weak and insecure despite its use of force. Being weak and insecure, he turns to methods of elimination. And you can see that in a robber who's scared to death and reaches for his gun in despair. But that's not power, not true power. It is force in, servant, in service of despair. But tyrants use it to rule entire countries. Now that's how the kingdom of this world works. We reject God's true power and we grasp onto our selfish interests and then leverage whatever authority we might have in this world and we end up cannibalizing others and calling it good. And Festo Kivengera says that it can explain both the thief and the tyrant. And a lot like Micah, Festo, Bishop Festo was willing to preach about this, even to the corrupt leaders of his own day. So on January 30th, 1977, Bishop Festo preached to a crowd that included police and uh, intelligence agents and representatives of the government of Idi Amin. He preached to them and he said this, Many of you have misused your authority, taking things by force or using too much force. 
Jesus Christ used his authority to save men and women. But how are you using your authority? If you misuse the authority God gave you, God is going to judge you because he is the one who gave it to you. One of the things that's interesting here, it seems to me, is that both Micah and Festo, they're not trying to abolish the structures that are being used for evil. He's rather calling the people in the midst of these structures to change, to repent, to recognize God's authority. And they're warning them that if they do not recognize God's authority, and if they do not repent, that God will judge them. Because God will not allow injustice to go on forever. And that's part of Micah's point. Look back at chapter 3. Do you see Micah's pronouncement of judgment? It's frightening. He says to Israel, Israel, if you do not turn around, then God is going to cut Israel off from himself and from his own presence. So look at verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4. Um, God says, Israel, if you do not repent, I'm going to stop listening to your prayers. Now, that's deadly, because if you remember the book of Exodus, when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, it was when they cried out in prayer that God rescued them and delivered them. Israel only exists because God answers prayer. But now he's saying, Israel, if you keep on the course that you're on, I'm going to no longer listen to you. I'm not going to answer your prayers. It's part of judgment. And then verse 7, God says, not only am I not going to answer your prayers, after a while, I'm not going to speak, and you will not hear my voice anymore. And then verse 6, Israel's going to look for the light of God, the light of the Lord that led them out of Egypt, but they're not going to see the light of the Lord. All they're going to see is darkness. This is the judgment that God is pronouncing upon his people. And friends, when God cuts off people from his own presence, Emmanuel, that is the beginning of hell. The kingdom of this world will eventually end in destruction. And Israel got a little taste of that. That's what the second half of chapter 3 is all about. God, indeed, stopped listening to Israel. God stopped speaking to Israel. And Israel ended up collapsing under the weight of their own cannibalism. And they went into exile. And we must understand that if we follow that path, that will be our end as well. Now, Emmanuel, can you see that the cannibalism of the kingdom of this world is all around us? Don't just sequester it thousands of years ago in ancient Israel. And my guess is that we can see the cannibalism of the kingdom of this world around us. But my guess is also that each of us is probably sensitive to the cannibalism of the kingdom of this world in different ways and in different issues. So we could, for instance, talk about how sometimes people of color fear law enforcement in ways that I've never had to. Some of us are sensitive to that, and we should be. That is part of the cannibalism of the kingdom of this world. And we could also talk about how young children who are not yet born are sometimes in terrible, terrible danger. Or we could talk about how their mothers are sometimes eaten alive and they find themselves in impossible situations 
often all alone. And as a pastor, I can't help but think about how easy it is for preachers to preach whatever it is that will make their people happy, to treat them like constituents. All of this is part of the cannibalism of the kingdom of this world. And it is all around us. But now let me ask you a question. What happens in your heart when you see the evils around us today? Because here's the thing, it's very easy to see evil that is outside us, especially evil that is not tempting to us in that moment. And it's really easy to see the evil that is outside us and to be appropriately filled with indignation and outrage. But then to subtly allow that outrage to turn into bitterness and hardness of heart. And here, Emmanuel, I want you to beware because the devil wants to outflank us right at this point. Remember, the kingdom of this world is rooted in the heart. And when our hearts harden with bitterness, that is the moment when the kingdom of this world is trying to replicate itself within our own souls. And the danger is that our moral outrage against legitimately wicked injustice around us can end up backfiring so that we end up cannibalizing or being ready to cannibalize our cultural opponents. And if we do that, then we will become agents of the evil that we imagine ourselves to oppose. The devil wants to outflank us. Now go back to Micah. Because maybe unexpectedly, Micah's point is not that we should just rage against the kingdom of this world. Micah's ultimate point is to show us that we need a better kingdom and that only Jesus can give us that better kingdom. Now, I can imagine somebody saying, Jesus, Jim, why are you talking about Jesus? Micah is 700 years before Jesus. To which I respond, I know. That's part of the miracle of Micah. Look over at the second reading. This is Micah chapter 5. Begin at verse 2. But you, says Micah, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, you who are too little to be named among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one from me who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Then skip to verse uh, 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Now that's it. You see, Micah knew that Israel would never be able to fix itself. And Micah knew that God would have to intervene. And Micah knew that God's intervention would come in the form of a new king who would be born in Bethlehem and that this ruler would secure Israel's peace, a peace that this world can never give. And 700 years that happened in Jesus of Nazareth. And it reached its climax when Jesus died upon the cross. Let me read from, once again, Bishop Festo. He says this, Christ's mission reached its climax when he was hanging upon the cross. There before Jesus were his enemies, jealous religious leaders, mocking soldiers, 
Roman authorities ignoring justice and the mob shouting, crucify him. Our suffering Lord loved them all with unquenchable love and he bled to death for them. Now, why did Jesus bleed? See, Jesus didn't simply rage against evil, though he was provoked by it and don't ever imagine he wasn't. But Jesus bled for his enemies. Jesus, with a love that this world can never give, he voluntarily suffered the judgment that the world deserves. He himself, in a mysterious way we can't entirely understand, was cut off from God, just like Israel deserved and just like our world deserves and just like we deserve. Jesus was cut off from the presence of God in a remarkable way that we can't entirely understand, but he did it so that the guilty could go free, so that he could give us a peace which the world can never give. And what that means for us, Emmanuel, is that we can move from the kingdom of this world and become citizens of the kingdom of God. And you ask, well, what does the kingdom of God look like? To which I respond, thank you for asking. Look at back at the first reading, the second half of it, beginning at verse, or at chapter four, verse one. Take a look at it. Because Micah gives us this bold, symbolic vision of the kingdom of God. And it's remarkable how the kingdom of God is the opposite of the kingdom of this world. Take a look at it. Chapter four, verse one. Do you see language about the mountain of God? The mountain of the Lord and the house of the Lord. Now the mountain of the Lord and the house of the Lord, those are images for God's temple in Jerusalem. And God's temple in Jerusalem is a symbol of God's presence with his people. There's this close presence between God and his people. It's the opposite of God's judgment against Israel. It's now a close, intimate, close relationship that animates the kingdom of God. And because God's presence is with his people, look at verse two of chapter four. Many nations shall come to the Lord and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let's draw near to the Lord. Let's run towards him to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Do you remember how the, in the kingdom of this world, one of the ways you know it's the kingdom of this world is that everybody's running away from God. Even the prophets who invoke the name of the Lord, they're falsifying him. They're using their religion to run away. But Micah says there's gonna come a day when people are gonna run towards him. And if you go to Jesus, Jesus, said that after I am lifted up, meaning after his death and his resurrection, Jesus says, I will draw all nations to myself. And that's been happening for the last 2000 years. For the last 2000 years, people from just about every nation have run to Jesus Christ, renouncing their citizenship in the kingdom of this world and asking for citizenship in the kingdom of God and gaining that citizenship through the forgiveness of their sins purchased through Christ's cross. And then as citizens of the kingdom of God, verse two, chapter four, verse two, God becomes our teacher. God himself teaches us his law. He's not like the false prophets who will tell us whatever it is that we wanna hear. No, when the Lord teaches us his law, he tells us not what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. Do you see how the kingdom of God takes the kingdom of this world and turns it on its head? Now, I need to point something out, and this is important. 
we will not see the fullness and the perfection of the kingdom of God until Christ returns. But for right now, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, they overlap and they sort of coexist. And that's actually part of God's plan because it means that we can live as citizens of God's kingdom and as resident aliens in the kingdom of this world. Why is that important? We'll look again at chapter four, verse two. It says, out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now watch that motion language. First, the Lord's drawing people to himself at Mount Zion. That's when we become citizens of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. But now he's sending people out. The word of the Lord is to go out from Jerusalem. And part of what that means is that the citizens of the kingdom of God are to go out and proclaim his word right in the middle of the kingdom of this world. What does that look like? Well, uh, Bishop Festo, once again, tells the story about a group of Christians who were rounded up by Idi Amin's men, his agents, and incarcerated. Now, watch this. This is the citizens of the kingdom of God are now being incarcerated by the kingdom of this world. What's going to happen there? Well, listen to what happens. For two days, the soldiers in the prison were exposed to the most joyous atmosphere they had ever experienced. Men and women praising God that they were in prison and sharing their testimonies and the scriptures with the soldiers and the soldiers felt loved. A number of them came under conviction of sin and asked how they could know this Jesus too. Now, friends, the kingdom of this world can use force. And in its weakness, that's the best it can do. But the kingdom of God has an unbridled power to grant true peace, even in defiance of injustice, right in the epicenter of injustice. But there's more. Go back to the reading. As the word of the Lord goes forth, chapter 4, verse 3, the Lord shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. Now, watch that word judgment. Again, God's final judgment will happen when Christ returns and all will be made right. But even before that, the Lord commissions citizens of the kingdom of God to go out and proclaim warnings of God's judgment all over this world and to target the kingdom of this world. And that's exactly what Micah is doing. Look back at chapter three, verse eight. Micah says, but as for me, I am filled with power from the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Micah goes out and he proclaims warning of the judgment of God. It's exactly what Bishop Festo did in the midst of Uganda. Now, what's important here is as citizens of the kingdom of God, they're not going out and merely raging or spewing bitterness. They're not returning evil for evil. What they're doing is they're proclaiming God's judgment. They're saying, stop it, turn around. There's a better way, flee from the wrath to come. And their aim 
and their motive is not by hate, and their aim is to awaken people's hearts from the cannibalism and the evil of their own sin so that they can see the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ so that in the end they can gain a peace which the world cannot give. It is an act of love towards enemies to proclaim the Lord's word and the Lord's judgment in the midst of the kingdom of this world. Can you see how the kingdom of God overturns the kingdom of this world? Now, let me go back to the beginning, though. Remember I told you that after all of Bishop Festo's remarkable courage, he nevertheless barely escaped Idi Amin. His friend, Bishop Janani Lawum, was killed. And Bishop Festo was traumatized. And he's sitting in a church in London, All Souls Church. And he's battling bitterness towards Idi Amin. And of course he is. But the question is, does Jesus have anything to say to him? He was cannibalized and chewed up by the kingdom of this world. At the end, is he just left as another casualty? And what about the last part of Micah's vision about the kingdom of God? If you look at chapter 4, verse 4, Micah talks about how they will beat their swords into plowshares and that they will not learn war anymore. Now, what could that possibly mean while we're still living in the midst of the kingdom of this world? Well, let me quote one last time from Bishop Festo. He said this, Peace is not automatic. It is a gift of the grace of God, and it always comes when hearts are exposed to the love of Christ. But this always costs something. For the love of Christ was demonstrated through suffering, and those who experience that love can never put it into practice without some cost. I had to face my own attitude toward President Idi Amin and his agents. And the Holy Spirit showed me that I was getting hard in my spirit, and that my hardness and bitterness towards those who were persecuting us could only bring spiritual loss. This would take away my ability to communicate the love of God. So I had to ask for forgiveness from the Lord and for grace to love President Idi Amin and to love him more. The Lord gave me assurance of forgiveness on Good Friday while I was one of the congregation that sat for three hours in All Souls Church in London, meditating upon the redeeming love of Jesus Christ. Right there, the Lord healed me, and I hurried to tell my wife about it. This was fresh air from my tired soul. I knew that I had seen the Lord and been released, and love filled my heart. Now, friends, Bishop Festo had every reason to take up a sword. He had every reason to look at the injustice that he had seen and cry out in indignation and then to allow his heart to become hard. And if he had done that, then the kingdom of this world would have replicated once again within his heart. But there is a peace which this world cannot give. And the cross of Jesus Christ took that sword and turned it into a plowshare for the kingdom of God. And Bishop Festo 
in the power of the Spirit because of the cross of Christ could love his enemy just like Jesus Christ had loved him. And now Emmanuel, consider this. If Jesus' justice and peace can free a traumatized soul who has endured the hell of Idi Amin, then Christ is sufficient to heal us in the midst of our present troubles. Emmanuel, Jesus is the only way to escape the cannibalism of the kingdom of this world. And he gives us a peace which this world cannot give. And he gives us a justice, he promises a justice that this world will never deliver. So Emmanuel, what I wanna say is this, look at Jesus Christ, flee to him. Feel the cannibalism of the kingdom of this world. Don't let it harden your heart, let it break your heart. Let it break your heart at the foot of the cross. Weep and lament for the cannibalism of the kingdom of this world, but do not be hardened by it. Flee to the king who died for you and then sit at his feet and learn his law. The book of James calls it the law of liberty. And then get up and live as his agents in the midst of this broken and troubled world and hold up Jesus Christ in the midst of the kingdom of this world because this world needs a peace which it cannot produce and it needs a justice which it can never deliver and only Jesus Christ can. So fix your eyes on him. Amen. Hello everyone, my name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.